Now, let me begin by <clears throat> sharing a piece of news that I read in the paper. I actually read it online, but it was in the actual paper. This past Tuesday, um, Albert Einstein's letter containing his thoughts on God and religion, a specific letter he wrote, I think, shortly before his death, was auctioned and it fetched $2.9 million. Somebody bought that letter containing Einstein's thoughts on God and religion for $2.9 million in New York just this past week. Uh, let me just tell you that right here I have God's own thoughts on God and religion. This is completely free. You don't have to go to New York. And we get to gather and, and hear God speak to us through his word. This is a great, great privilege that we have. Charles Spurgeon compared God's word to a lion. I don't know if you know that quote. It's just a great image. Spurgeon said, uh, God's word is like a lion. You don't have to defend it. All you have to do is just you open the cage and you just let it out. And, and, then, um, and then God's word does the rest. And so the, the point of preaching and teaching is to open the cage and let the lion out. So the best defense of the gospel is to let the gospel out. And that's what we're going to do this morning. And I'm going to ask you to stand if you're able, and we're going to affirm our confidence in this word, and then we will get into our text. Let's say it all together. All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. You may be seated. Before I read our text, let me just say that we continue in our Advent sermon series that we've called Christ's Birth Through Mary's Eyes. Last week we considered Mary's faith. That was our angle at her life. And today we're looking at Mary's joy. We're going to be looking at this, specifically at the song that she sang as she was processing the prophecy about Christ's birth. So let me read our passage. We're in, in Luke chapter 1 and verse 39. And if you're using the Black Pew Bible, it's on page 856, 856. And if you don't have a Bible of your own, please take one of ours and take it home. So let me read this to you. Luke 1, 39. In those days... Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town of, in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. 
He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. This is God's word. Now clearly the passage is about joy. Baby leaps for joy in the womb. That's John the Baptist. And Elizabeth rejoices at Mary's arrival and gets pretty excited that she has been given this honor to be with Mary as she is pregnant with the Messiah. And so then Mary finally sings a song of joy herself. Now our focus throughout the series is on Mary's experience, so we will will consider her joy by looking at her song specifically. I'd like to point out that Mary's song is a praise song, it is a personal song, and it is a prophetic song. And that will help us understand what joy is and how to be joyful ourselves. It's a praise song, it's a personal song, and it's a prophetic song. So let's look at the connection of praise and joy first. This is how the song begins. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Two lines are parallel. Even if if you look at your Bible, the way it's, it's laid out, you can see how one follows the other. It's underneath. It's offset just a little bit to let us know it's a continuation of the first line. But it sounds very much like the first line. And this is a, a parallel structure here. What, what Mary is doing is she's magnifying the Lord. And at the same time, as she is magnifying the Lord, she's rejoicing in him. Now, it's crucial for us to see this connection that our joy is tied to God's glory. Our joy is tied to God's glory. This is how Mary, Mary presents it to us. She magnifies the Lord even as she is Uh, She is rejoicing in him. Now, literally, she says, I am magnifying or amplifying or enlarging or expanding God. That's a literal translation. We usually translate as glorify. Mary glorifies or praises or exalts the Lord. But the literal meaning is, I think, is very helpful. When we praise God, we make him big. When we praise him, we, we make him great. Now, of course, we don't actually do that. We have to work through this a little bit. When we magnify God and we use that language, we don't make him bigger than he already is, right? God does not increase in size when we praise him. There there can't be any more of God than there was before we started praising him. He's just as big as he's ever been. We can't add to God's perfection But when we praise him, we acknowledge his greatness, we marvel at his perfection, and we engage with him as he is, as big as he is. And as we do that, this is what happens in in praise when we worship him, when we magnify him. As we do that, God becomes bigger in our experience, in our estimation. He becomes greater to us. So when you praise God... You see him as bigger than you had seen him before. He grows in in your view, in your experience. When we contemplate how big he is, he appears bigger 
to us and he becomes bigger to us in our experience. One of my favorite websites is Atlas Obscura. I don't know if anybody goes on Atlas Obscura. It's, it's, it's fascinating. It's just, it's very cool. Because what they do is they find these, these weirdest, most wondrous places in the world. And then they would do a quick article or just lots of, usually lots of pictures. And they organize trips to all sorts of places. You can limit it to, like, by a state. Like, I've found some really cool places in Missouri that are just kind of rare and, and unusual. And as I, as I go on that website and I, and I look at different places, I'm not discovering anything new, right? It already exists. But I am discovering them for myself. I did not know anything about that particular place. There was an article on the freshwater seals on Lake Baikal in Russia. I never knew there were seals. The lake is so big, there are like seals in there. Now, they were there, but I didn't know that. And in my mind, they did not exist. But once I learned about them, they become part of my reality and part of my engagement with the world. So when we praise God, it's not like we increase his size. It's not like we make him greater than he is. But to us, in our estimation, in our experience, he does become greater and bigger. Praise is like exploring God's greatness. It's exploring God's greatness. Now, how, why is this important when we think about joy? Because we were made by God with a powerful appetite for joy. We have, and I'm not exaggerating, I want to make sure I use precise language here, we have an infinite capacity for joy. Infinite capacity. Not just very large, but infinite capacity for joy. Now, we feel that in our normal day-to-day lives. You find something you enjoy, and you want more of it. Or you want to move on to another thing you enjoy. None of us are, are ever content fully with something or someone or any kind of pursuit. We always are moving forward. We're always expanding our ability to enjoy something or looking for other objects to enjoy. We live our lives in pursuit of happiness, often just, just struggling to sustain what we feel or increase our experience of joy. Now, this has become a, a cliche in Christian circles, is to say that only God can satisfy this longing for joy. Now, that's, that's actually true. It's one of those cliches that are right, which is why you hear it all the time, is because the way we're made, there's an infinite capacity, which means that only an infinite object can, can satisfy us fully. That doesn't mean we don't experience joy in life. Of course, we all do, but it's never lasting It's never full, it's never all satisfying, and so we are left with a longing that doesn't seem to go away. And the reason for that is because there's there's a space in us that is made for God. It's it's the way we're designed. And this idea comes from Blaise Pascal. Pascal says, "There there once was in man a true happiness of which now remains to him only the mark an empty trace, which he in vain tries to fill from all his surroundings, seeking from things absent the help he does not obtain in things present. But these are all inadequate. 
inadequate because the infinite abyss can only be filled by an infinite and immutable object, that is to say, only by God himself. Pascal is saying that we are made with an ability, a capacity for joy, and this capacity is infinite, and only an infinite object, only an immutable object, only God himself can actually fill this longing. All, all other objects simply can't match our capacity for joy. It's like telling a world traveler who maybe actually goes to places we see on Atlas Obscura website, it's just, it's like telling him, you know what, I just want you to limit your explorations to your backyard. Just, just put a fence around it and all your explorations just do over here. Or talking to somebody from NASA and saying, you know, we're, we're going to stop the space program and we just really want you to work on paper airplanes. Just make that your goal. You guys set up whatever you need to do in the office and just do that. Everybody would be disappointed with that because it doesn't match the capacity for what NASA engineers and others are made. You see, you want more. You feel like you need to explore greater depth and greater, to greater extent. And so this is how we're made, to explore God's greatness, which is to increase our joy. Psalm 16 says, in your presence, directed towards God, in your presence there is fullness of joy, fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This, this is a fascinating verse because it tells us that, sure, there's lots of places where, where there's pleasure, where there's joy. But there's one place and there's one person where the joy is full and the pleasures are forevermore. They don't stop. It's only one source. And that's what actually fulfills us. So when Scripture again and again commands us to praise God. So many commands in Scripture to praise Him, to worship Him, to exalt Him, to magnify Him. Or maybe when your pastor tells you to come and worship God and praise Him, it's not only because God deserves our praise as our creator and king, our sustainer, our, our redeemer. It's also because you cannot be truly happy you can't be forever happy. You can't be happy to the degree that you are capable of unless you praise God, unless you engage with him and explore his greatness. And that's why Mary's song of joy begins with and is marked by her magnifying the Lord. This is one of the concepts that once we understand it, once it clicks for us, is so useful to make sense of the rest of the world. Once we connect our desire for joy with worship, with exploring who God is, with seeing him as great, then you realize how you should be processing relationships and jobs and, and eating good food and dancing. All those things now become in the right, they, they're placed in the right context. And you're able to to actually live your life the way God has designed you to live with the joy in God as primary and everything else is secondary. So let me ask you this question. Have you made the connection between your joy and God's glory? As you pursue joy in your life, have you connected that pursuit to the destination of God? 
Have you decided that for you to really rejoice, to really enjoy life, to really be who you're supposed to be, you need God? Otherwise, you can't do it. There's nothing else that can fill that capacity for joy. And if you have come to that, the second question, the follow-up question would be, are you doing everything you can in your life to pursue this joy in God? Have you reorganized your life and said, I'm not avoiding joy, which is how a lot of Christians live, by avoiding joy. In fact, I am pursuing the most joy I can find. And it has to be in God and through God. It has to be. Have you processed it in very practical terms, which would mean a change of schedule, which would mean how you approach meals and relationships and all of that? Have you processed it in terms of the connection between your joy and God's glory. Well, the second aspect of Mary's song, it's a praise song, but it's a very personal song. It's based on her personal experience of God. Look at verses 48 and 49. And as I read it, just notice how personal her language is. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Mary experienced God's grace personally. It's not something she heard about. She knew God's grace was real because she experienced it in her life. She was a poor peasant girl from Galilee, and God chose her her, this person, to be the mother of the Savior of the world. And so she can say, you, you, Lord, you, you looked on the humble estate of your servant. You know what I am, and you know that I really shouldn't be in this position, and yet you gave me grace so I can be your servant. And from now on, everybody's going to remember me. They're going to call me blessed. And what, what an honor that God gave to this person, just a normal, regular person. She feels it. She feels it deeply. She knows that it's all by grace and it's been directed specifically towards her. God has done great things for me, she says, for me. Yes, for everybody, and we'll get to that, but for me. And so she's praising God and recognizing God's greatness in her own life. Yes, she's praising God and exploring who God is, but she's connecting that with her experience. Matthew Henry said that Mary never saw God so great as when she found him so good. That's a good way to put it. Kind of have to process it a little bit and think, think through it, but she couldn't see him as great as she is until she saw him as good as she is to her in her experience. Now, we can all relate to that. You go through, through a, an experience with God, and, and he does something great in your life, and you, and you realize he's just been good to you, that he did something for you because he cares, cares about you. And that raises your level of praise to him. And now you see him as greater than you saw him before because of that personal connection that he has developed with you. For our joy to be real... God's greatness must be a personal experience for us. We can't rely on other people's accounts. We can't just say, well, everybody else thinks God is great, so he must be great. 
Of course, that's true. But he has to be great to you. He has to be good in your life to praise him and to enjoy him. There's an account of, of, of Simone Weil. She was a French philosopher and became a Christian at the end of her uh, pretty brief life. <clears throat> and I keep going back to this description of her conversion. Now, this is not a likely convert. Really, she wrestled with a lot of arguments against God. And this is how she describes her conversion, and I think many of us would relate to that. She says, in my arguments about the insolubility of the problem of God, I had never foreseen the possibility of that, of a real contact, person to person, here below, between a human being and God. I had vaguely heard tell of things of this kind, but I had never believed in them. In the sudden possession of me by Christ, neither my senses nor my imagination had any part. I only felt, felt in the midst of my suffering the presence of a love, like that which one can read in the smile on a beloved's face. Now that's her description of conversion. She says, you know, I had all these issues. I couldn't solve the problem of God. And then God just showed up. And he just possessed me so close to me that it was like looking at a beloved's face. So personal, so intimate, so near. So many of us can, can, can say the same thing about our conversion and, 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 and moments that you have in your prayer life and moments that you have when you read scripture, moments that you have in ministry when you feel like God is right here. So personal, so intimate, he's near so can you, can you look at your life and ask yourself whether that's your experience? Because sometimes, sometimes, you may be a part of church, you may agree with all the Christian values and be completely on board with the Christian platform, and yet you may have never experienced God's grace personally. And you don't know him. You know about him. You may know lots of things about him, but you don't know him. And so my call today is to draw near to him, go close to him, and see if you can know him, if you can know his grace personally. Do you have a relationship with him? Another cliche we use, right? A relationship with God. Very true. Very good way to describe it. We need to be in a relationship with God like we are with a person because he is a person. I was listening to a sermon this week by, by Kent Hughes. He, he was a pastor in Wheaton and um, wrote some good commentaries. And he made just an incredible statement. And again, I feel like sometimes I share an insight from my experience and half of you already had that insight and it doesn't feel fresh or new to you. And I just feel weird sometimes, <laughs> um, especially with more experienced Christians in the room. But to me, it was just such a fresh insight and I'll just share with you and maybe it's helpful. If not, just humor me, Okay. He said, Ken Hughes said that, that when Jesus was born of Mary, there was always a little bit of Mary in Jesus. That Jesus always resembled Mary and resembles Mary in some way. Now, it seems common sense, right? When you have kids or you, you see a parent and a kid, you can find similarities in the way they move, 
in the way they carry themselves, in the way they speak, in the way they, sometimes it's the laugh that's the same, right? You hear someone's laughing and say, I know what family they belong to because that's how they all laugh, right? Or maybe the way we pronounce certain words you pick up from your parents. And this is what was Jesus' experience. I'd never thought of it before this way. That he actually, in his person, resembled Mary. That somebody could look at him and say, oh, that must be Mary's son. That's how close God came to Mary. I mean, it's unbelievable to think that God himself would say, I'm going to take on not just general human traits, I'm going to take on, Mary, your specific traits. So when people see me, they will know that I'm related to you. I'm sure Mary thought about that, even though I hadn't until this week. I'm sure Mary was thinking about that because she's looking at this baby that smiles a certain way, that speaks a certain way, and the hair is a certain color. And you, I wonder what it was like for her. I mean, it must have been just amazing to think that the Messiah has come into my life and he looks like me. I mean, it's unbelievable to think about it that way, that God came so close to her that her experience of grace was so personal, was so intimate, was, was so inseparable from, from her life, raising children and being in the home. Now, God comes close to us too, right? I was going to save it till the end, but I'll tell you now that there's always a little bit of Jesus in us. That the Father would look at us and he would say, oh, he moves like Jesus and he speaks like Jesus and he laughs like Jesus. That's how close he wants to be to us. So we would take on his traits. That we would, Scripture says, okay, mind-blowing idea. Scripture says that we would partake in his nature, in the divine nature. We would partake in that. Jesus says that they will share my glory. The glory I have, I'll give to them. I mean, it's amazing to think that that's how close God got to us. And when you start thinking about it in this way, and you start noticing these things in your life, and it becomes an experience, then you realize that, that there's a lot of joy in that. You can rejoice because God has gotten involved in your life, and His grace is personal. His grace is real. His presence is real to you. Mary could rejoice in that. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, it's a second Spurgeon quote this morning. If you're keeping track, if you're in the you know, sabermetrics of preaching, then this is the second. Uh, if you're in the analytics, this is the second Spurgeon quote. He says, he says Oh, you can never know the joy of Mary. Unless Christ becomes truly and really yours. But oh, when he is yours, yours within, reigning in your heart, yours controlling all your passions, yours changing your nature, subduing your corruptions, inspiring you with hallowed emotions, yours within, a joy unspeakable and full of glory, oh, then you can sing. You must sing. Who can restrain your tongue. If all the scoffers and mockers upon earth should bid you hold your peace, you must sing, for your spirit must rejoice in God, your Savior. And finally, we get to the last point. We're looking at the prophetic nature of Mary's song, 
Let me read the rest of it, verses 50 through 55. She kind of transitions from the personal experience to the corporate experience, what God is doing in creation and with his people. Verse 50, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Now, even though Mary is speaking in the past tense, right? This, if you read it, it's like God has already done that. She is talking about the future. She's really looking forward something God has yet to do. She's talking in what the scholars call the prophetic past tense. The prophetic past tense. Prophets sometimes would do that. They would describe a future event, but they would put it in the past tense because they have so much confidence that God will do what he said he will do that they're comfortable in putting it in the past tense as if, as if it's already happened. And this confidence that God will do all these things comes from God's covenant promises. As he spoke to our fathers, she says, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Mary is simply trusting that God will remain faithful, that he will do what he has determined to do, and he told people from old and made a covenant with them, made an agreement with them, that God will continue to be faithful as he is in her life right now. And so she is expecting that all these promises will come true, and this is a, a, a richly saturated with Scripture and other prophecies passage. She's not just making it up. She's really drawing it from the Old Testament. But she knows it's going to happen because God is faithful. God is a covenant God. So she's looking forward to the complete restoration of God's creation and the establishment of God's eternal kingdom. She looks forward to the expression of God's power. Sometimes we forget that God is very, very powerful because he's gentle with us, because he's often tender and patient and kind with us. We forget that he is also a mighty warrior. And there will be a time when he will come in power and he will rule in power. There's the kingdom of grace in which we live now. And there's the kingdom of glory that is yet to come. And in the kingdom of glory, no enemy will be able to withstand his power. He will exalt those of humble estate. He will fill the hungry with good things. And the rich, those who trust in their wealth, those who oppress the poor, he will send away empty. He will scatter the proud and he will bring down the mighty. There will be a time when all who have exalted themselves will be brought down. And all those who have been humbled will be exalted. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about this idea of reversal as essential to our understanding of the gospel. We, we talked about peribity as being the word that nobody, apparently nobody knows. And, um, and I happened to see in a commentary, so don't feel like I knew the word before I shared it with you. 
But this, this idea that there's literally a device in, in Esther, that there's a great reversal of fortunes that happens. Somebody who was doing great is now completely in trouble. And somebody who was in trouble is doing great, and it changes. There's a reversal. We talked about how this idea of reversal is essential to our understanding of God's story. That those who are humble now will be exalted. Those who are exalted now will be brought low. Because that is what happened with Jesus. When he came, he came and he was humbled, but God exalted him. And so now all the humble would be exalted with him. This idea of of perfect justice will be established. It's not now. Now our justice is not perfect, but there will be a time when justice will be perfect. We will know exactly every detail of every case and the justice will be restored. It's impossible for us to comprehend now. We don't even know how we know things, right? Philosophers argue about how do you know something? But there will be a time when God will know everything perfectly and he will establish his justice perfectly and nothing that you've suffered in this life will be wasted All evil will be punished. All good will be rewarded. In our future, all bad things will be undone. That is a reason to rejoice. When we look at our lives now, we must remember, it is so important for us to remember that there will be a time when this will change. Yes, we see progress now, but there will be a time when it will be completely different And it will be exactly right. Exactly right. Amen. Amen. To imagine that, that nothing in your life will be wrong, is almost unimaginable. Every longing will be fulfilled. This great reversal is coming, and Mary is able to see it prophetically, and she is rejoicing now at what is yet to come. Because she has seen God's faithfulness through his promises to Abraham and his people. And now through the provision of the Messiah that is growing in her womb. She's saying, there's there's other things that are going to happen. This king will rule and everything will be set right. Let me share this, this story really quick with you. When I was thinking about reversals and kind of revolutions, and I come from a country where there's a sort of a schedule of revolutions and you kind of know. I think we're maybe getting close to the next one. But I remember when I was, I was young, and it was probably late 80s, early 90s, and I, I went to see my family, which we would go, most summers we would go to this. It's, it's this touristy town in the western part of Ukraine in the mountains, uh, known for its mineral waters. And I understand that this is not a culture where you would take your holiday and go drink mineral water somewhere. But there are other countries in the world where people do that, okay? Or at least they used to do that. When you, when you read about, you know, last century, people just would do that. They would go and, and just drink mineral water to help with their, their health. Arkansas, yeah, so maybe, maybe it's, it's here too. So I remember, and we as kids would go, and, you know, inevitably, like, we would have to go drink the water, which we didn't, didn't care for. But it was a fun time. We, we stayed with our family. And this is a sleepy little town. Nothing ever happened. You know, like all we did, literally, all we did was just go to the park, we'd feed the squirrels, we'd walk to the thing where they have the water, we'd drink some water, we'd come home. Like it's just nothing ever happened. Until one day, until one day, 
crazy thing happened. I'm going, you know, I'm, I'm out. And there's a huge statue of Vladimir Lenin in the center of the town, which but every town had that where I grew up. And that was right when I think Ukraine must have broken away from the Soviet Union. I don't remember exactly the date, but it was a lot of turmoil. And people just got really excited about the possibility of being independent. And so they got a crane, and they got a noose, and they brought down that statue. It was just a, and I'm just passing by, by the way. I'm, I, didn't, I didn't get the notice of a meeting. I didn't know what was going on. I'm just going on my way to drink some mineral water for my health. <laughs> and there's a, there's a crowd. I mean, it's just incredible. And I mean, it's scary, too. <laughs> and they're just taking down this. It's a marble statue. And then they're dragging its pieces across the little downtown of, of this, this sleepy little touristy town. It's just, isn't, I mean, stuff like that you remember. You know, when you get older, you remember childhood memories like that. It's just this great reversal. And to, to see the joy of the people, it's amazing. People were so happy that they were finally able to get from under that oppression. And it felt like it's a great reversal. Good things are to come. Things are changing. The people who were in power, those who have exalted themselves, have been brought down low. And those, the rich, have been sent away empty. And now the hungry are going to get good things. That's how it felt at the time. Now, of course, as we know, in our world, it doesn't last. I mean, you get a glimpse of that, and you get that feeling. It's very exciting. And then next week, you know, you go to your job, and you don't get paid. And <laughs> things look really different. But Mary is thinking of the time when this great reversal will actually happen. And it will happen in the right way, and it will stick, and things are going to be different forever. What an amazing day for us to look forward to, where God will rule. I'm going to end my sermon with inviting you to this kind of joy, to the joy of Mary, to the joy of every aware Christian, to the joy of Christ that he brings to us. And especially during this Advent season, we are hopefully thinking about the coming of Christ, both his first coming and his birth and him getting close to us, becoming like us, taking on our features so we could take on his qualities, him revealing God's glory to us. Now, Christmas is about God's glory coming into our world. And Jesus says, you want to know what God is like? Here I am. Look at me. Know me. Be in a relationship with me. Also, during Advent, of course, we're thinking about his second coming, too. It's not all about Christmas. Advent is a preparation for his return. And so we think about that day when he will rule in power, when he will establish his kingdom forever, when things will be set right, and we will have no suffering, no pain, but eternal joy. When we think about Jesus, how he comes close to us, how he reveals God's glory, how he is the fulfillment of all the covenant promises of God. He will restore and renew this world, even as he has started already. What do you feel? What do you feel? You should feel joy. You should feel happy, giddy even, that we get to celebrate this kind of Savior even now. And so as you come to the table, I'm asking you to come with joy. Come thinking about Jesus. Come thinking about his first coming, 
and prepare yourself for his second coming. Look forward to what he has yet to do. Sing Mary's song prophetically. Sing it personally. Sing it as a praise to God, exploring his greatness and increasing your joy. If you're not a believer, if you're not a follower of Christ, I encourage you to come into joy for the first time. Come into joy. Come and experience what Jesus is all about and feel him close and realize that he came to be like you, to suffer and die for your sins and to give you a new life through his resurrection. And even now, he is caring for you, praying for you, loving you, making sure that you will be in his kingdom forever. Come and experience that. Come to him by faith and accept him for who he is and begin to explore his greatness.